Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Michael Mandelbaum about his new book, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower, from Oxford University Press. Michael is the Christian A. Herder Professor Emeritus of American Foreign Policy, the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. In The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Michael provides a sweeping history of America through the lens of international politics. This approach frames American domestic and economic challenges in a different light that many U.S. histories typically ignore. Well-written and carefully laid out, this book is an excellent overview of American foreign policy. Michael, thank you for joining me today at the New Books Network. My pleasure. So the first question I'd like to ask is if you can just tell me a little bit about your background and why you chose to write this book. Yes, the the book has an interesting origin story. Um, I taught for a number of years American foreign policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which is a graduate school of international relations. And we have students from all over the world, uh, and of course, from the United States as well. And uh, I had a student from Vietnam. He was sent by the Vietnamese Foreign Ministry to study American foreign policy, which meant studying with me, to become an expert on the United States. And indeed, uh, he did become an expert. He was the consul general in Houston. Now he is, I believe, the head of the America desk in the Vietnamese foreign ministry. And uh, so he took all of my courses. And one day he came in to see me in office hours and he said, what should I read in order to understand American foreign policy? So I began listing books and articles and periodicals. And after I had uh, made a list of, of a number of such things, he said, no, what I mean is, what's the one thing I should read to understand American foreign policy? Well, I didn't know. I didn't have an answer for him. And Uh, the question and my inability to answer it stayed with me. And so I decided that I would write a book that would encapsulate and explain the principal themes of American foreign policy all in one volume. And I began making notes. And as I was making notes, I I said to my wife, who uh, edited this book, as she's edited all my books, she's a professional editor and a very good one. So the readability I owe to her, I said, you know, as I'm making notes for this book, I realize that although I know the history of American foreign policy after 1945 very well, my command of the history of American foreign policy from the colonial period to World War II is sketchy. So I really am going to have to go back and learn that history. And she said, well, 
as long as you're going to learn the history, why don't you write a history yourself? And that's what I did. And credit to your wife, because this book is highly readable. I found it very enjoyable to read. Um, and I think what was very fascinating about it is how, you know, typically, I think when people learn American history in high school or in college or just on their own during doing a survey, uh, there's this sort of split between domestic policy and foreign policy, a, a split between domestic issues and foreign issues. And I think that this book really demonstrates how much and how how frequently domestic issues were framed by some sort of distinction uh, go, or some issue going on in, uh, in oftentimes Europe or later on in Asia and Latin America and elsewhere. So I, I think, you know, it's best to, to probably start from the top with the the sort of the the cause of the Revolutionary War. And I was wondering if you could discuss the sort of relations between the U.S. and Britain and, and France prior to the Revolutionary War and how those relationships changed over the course of about a decade or so of fighting until the writing of the Constitution. Sure. Let me first say something about the point you made about the impact of domestic politics, because in the four ages of American foreign policy, I argue that there are three important continuities throughout the 250 years of American foreign policy that I cover. And one of them is uh, what I call the unusually democratic character of American foreign policy. By that, I mean that public opinion and the public and interest groups have had a relatively greater impact on American foreign policy than has been the case for other countries. For the great powers of Europe until the middle of the 20th century, uh, or at least until the beginning of the 20th century, foreign policy was the province of monarchs and aristocrats. But of course, the United States had neither. And that left the field clear for a, 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 an unusually large impact by domestic actors on foreign policy. And in the book, I show how that is particularly true in war. Public opinion uh, had a, a major role in starting some American wars and in stopping some American wars. Well, uh, when, when we when we go back to the revolution, uh, what we find is that uh, the trigger for the war, and this is uh, something one reads in all the histories of the period, was the taxes that the British imposed on the 13 colonies in the wake of the Seven Years' War, which ended in a British victory over France in 1763, and drove the French from North America. It made North America uh, an entirely, well, not entirely, but the, the French were defeated. Brit the British took control of Canada to go with their colonies, but they'd incurred expenses and they saw that it was going to be expensive to police uh, North America. And so they thought, well, we're gonna need more revenue. Who better to get it from than the colonists? They. Uh, were relatively wealthy, including uh, by one estimate that I cite in the book, in the 18th century, in the 1760s, the, the colonialists, the colonials were 
50% richer. Their, the average income was 50% higher than the average income in Britain. Uh, so they thought, well, we, we fought the war for these people. We're policing North America on their behalf. They're getting all the benefits. We are the imperial power. We are entitled to tax them. And to their shock and astonishment, the, the American colonials refused and rebelled. And that led to what we call the Revolutionary War or the War of Independence. What is interesting about this war to me is that each side thought that it was defending the status quo and the other side was disturbing the status quo and therefore it was fighting a kind of defensive war. How could that be? Well, it was the case because the British view was they were the imperial power uh, and the the Americans didn't dispute that. Most of them in 1765, when I begin the book, were loyal subjects of the crown. They were happy to be part of the British Empire. They were proud of it. They called Britain home, even if they'd never been there. Uh, and so the British government thought, not only are these taxes reasonable, all things considered, but we have the right to impose them. There shouldn't be any question about that. These are our subjects. The Americans, for their part, saw this as a rupture with the status quo, because although the British, in theory, had the right to tax the American colonies, they, the de jure, according to the law, this was their right. In fact, de facto, they didn't do so. Uh, they kept a very loose rein on the American colonies. They didn't pay much attention to them. They had not imposed the, these taxes before. They had imposed some taxes, but the Americans, in what became a kind of tradition, ignored them or got around them. So suddenly the Americans were faced with the prospect of having to pay taxes that the British were serious about imposing. The so-called Stamp Act was a kind of, was a tax on every paper product. It wasn't just stamps, but all kinds of other paper products. And the British were determined to enforce them. It was a kind of turnover tax or value added tax. And the Americans had never had to pay that. And they were outraged. They thought that the British were infringing on their rights. And they, they, they said that the revolution was being made to defend what they called the rights of Englishmen. Their idea was that, the, that they had certain rights and the British were trying to take them away. The British view was exactly the same. They had certain rights and the Americans were trying to take them away. And that was the basis for the Revolutionary War. It, it should be said that at the very beginning, the American colonies did not intend to obtain independence. They didn't say that they wanted to break away from the British. They just wanted their rights restored. And they uh, announced the Declaration of Independence in 1776 for tactical reasons. They had been getting some assistance from the French, and here we come to the role of the French, uh, from the very beginning. And the reason was that the French were opposed to Great Britain and Europe. That was the great Cold War, the great 
uh, rivalry of the time. And anything that weakened the British was good for the French. And so they helped the rebellious colonies. But there was a limit to their assistance. The, the colonials, the 13 colonies, were decidedly weaker than the, the British were. This was the period that I, I called the, the period of America as a weak power. They certainly had no hope of defeating the British militarily without help. And they wanted to get as much help as possible from the French and from other European powers that wanted to see the British uh, damaged. And they calculated that the, the French and the other Europeans would be willing to give more assistance if their goal was to break away entirely and become independent. And therefore, on July 4th, 1776, they issued a, de a declaration, principally written by Thomas Jefferson, proclaiming that they were and ought to be free and independent. It's also worth noting, pursuant to your question, that uh, as a weak power, the United States needed allies, it needed friends, it needed stronger powers on its side, and it managed to get the French on uh, its side, thanks in no small part to the skillful diplomacy of Benjamin Franklin, who was the colony's representative in Paris, and who therefore has some claim to being the most important diplomat in American history. And the, what proved to be the decisive battle of the war, the Battle of Yorktown in Virginia, was won by the 13 colonies. The British general, General Howe, uh, sorry, General Cornwallis surrendered because the Americans had French troops with them and because the French fleet blockaded the coast of Virginia where the battle took place so that the British army could not get assistance from the British fleet. So the United States uh, was able to emerge as independent because of French assistance, because of an alliance with the French in which the 13 colonies were decidedly the junior partner. And you know, you, you mentioned Franklin's role uh, in relationship with the French. Also, Jefferson, of course, you know, famously, you know, lots of relations. He had spent a lot of time in Paris. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about this sort of general, you know, even after the war is fought, this kind of general sense about whether or not America was going to have more of a relationship with France or more of a relationship with Britain, especially considering all of the eruptions that were going on in Europe after the U.S. Revolutionary War and with the start of the French Revolution? Well, that's an important issue because the first American political party system was formed on the basis of foreign policy. And the two principal parties in the early republic were the Federalists, who were really descended from George Washington's administration, uh, John Adams, his vice president, became president for a term. Alexander Hamilton, who was the chief uh, advisor to Washington and secretary of the Treasury, was the brains of the Federalist Party. And they were pro-British in the sense that they believed that once the war was over, they should strive for good relations with Great Britain. 
And that was true for, an, for two particular reasons. One was that the bulk of the colony's trade was still with Britain, and it was very important, and they wanted it, it to continue, and they wanted to enhance it. Uh, the second reason was that because Britain had the strongest navy in Europe, it controlled the sea lanes from, the, from, from Europe across the Atlantic to the United States, and that meant that Britain was the only European power that had ready access to North America and therefore the only European great power about which the new United States had to be concerned. So good relations with Britain were paramount. It's also the case that Hamilton admired Britain. This was the period when Britain was just coming to the top of the great uh, international system when it was becoming the strongest power in the world by virtue of its trade, by virtue of its uh, leadership in the Industrial Revolution, by virtue of its financial prowess. And uh, Hamilton thought that the United States ought to be a country like Britain. Jefferson and his Republicans, the opposition party that subsequently changed their name to Democrats and the Democrats of today are the direct descendants of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson and the Republicans had a different view. They admired France. They didn't like Britain. Uh, Jefferson had a serious problem with Britain. He had great animus against Britain. He didn't want to deal with Britain. He welcomed the French Revolution and even endorsed it, uh, even to the point at which it turned to terror. Uh, and so he and he thought that the United States should not be the kind of country that Hamilton wanted it to be. He thought it should be largely agricultural. It should be a republic or perhaps several republics of gentlemen farmers. And for that reason, he was very interested in expanding as far as possible across North America because he wanted enough land for every American to own some and be a farmer. He didn't like merchants. He didn't like cities. His view was a kind of pastoral view. And it's, it's noteworthy that although uh, Hamilton never became president and Jefferson served for two terms, the United States of the 21st century more closely resembles Alexander Hamilton's vision than it does Thomas Jefferson's. And had it not proceeded in the direction that Hamilton wanted it to proceed, the United States could never have become a great power, let alone a superpower and the world's hyperpower. One other point about the difference between the Federalists and Jefferson's Republicans. Both of them faced the same problem. Uh, the French Revolution broke out in 1789. In 1794, the French were at war with the British. The British fought the French by imposing a blockade using their naval superiority. They didn't want anyone to trade with the French or with French colonies, and that included the United States. And so they made it a practice of stopping American ships loaded with goods that they thought might be headed for France or French colonies. Uh, when this first happened, George Washington was president and he didn't like it. No Americans liked it. But Washington sent a delegation to London to negotiate a compromise with the British. And 
It was headed by the then Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay. Jay negotiated a compromise. He brought it back. It was unpopular, but Washington did submit it to the Senate as a treaty, and it was narrowly enacted. In the, in the beginning of the 19th century, when Jefferson was president, he faced the same problem. He also sent a delegation to Paris to negotiate a compromise. It also came up with a compromise, which wasn't all that different from the one that Washington accepted. But Jefferson rejected it. He said that it did not meet all of America's demands. It was not completely consistent with American principles of neutrality, and therefore he would not adopt it. This led to a series of misadventures that culminated under Jefferson's successor and protege, James Madison, in the War of 1812, which I call the most misbegotten war the United States ever fought. And, and sort of on the point of that war, this, the War of 1812 was a, you know, I don't know if it's safe to say, a sort of a replay of the Revolutionary War. Uh, but, you know, the, you discuss in it, even though, even though it was not very successful, uh, there were certain implications on American culture and that the kind of the way that people received it was as this kind of victory for, for sort of Jeffersonian ideals or Madisonian principles that they, that, that the Federalists disappe sort of disappeared, even though their influence, as you say, still will maintain in certain ways. And Jefferson was you know, even in his presidency, <laughs> didn't necessarily hew to his principles. Uh, you know, I, I guess, what was the sort of the impact of this war on American culture? I, I should begin by saying something about the war. It was the unnecessary war. Uh, it was begun in part because hawkish members of Congress, mainly from the West, who didn't engage in trade, thought that the United States could win and in particular could capture Canada and incorporate it into the United States, which was a persistent American goal. Madison, who was then president, didn't really want to go to war, but he was boxed in. His uh, Republicans had denounced the British for the last eight years uh, and really the last 12 years, when they had held the White House, and yet they'd done nothing about it. So he declared war. Um, the war went badly for the United States. America was trounced in that war. The British sent troops that landed in North America, that campaigned up and down the East Coast, that uh, occupied Washington and burned every building in Washington except the post office, including the White House, and then left. Uh, then uh, the British uh, agreed to uh, a treaty, which was signed in 1814 and, and ratified in 1815. It was negotiated in the Belgian city of Ghent, which restored the status quo ante. The United States got nothing for it. So Whereas in the first war against the British, America gained independence. In the second war, it gained nothing. Uh, it was really, uh, as I say, a misbegotten war. One thing that the United States did gain indirectly and perversely was the end of the British practice called impressment. The British would stop 
American merchant ships, and if there were British sailors on board, and if the British believed that these sailors had deserted from British warships, and a number of them had, they would seize them and force them to work on British warships in the war against Napoleon. This went down very badly with the Americans. It seemed uh, a, a, a clear violation of American neutral rights and of human rights. Uh, the British ceased the practice of impressment voluntarily because the war against Napoleon came to an end. They defeated Napoleon and had no more use for it. So the one major complaint that had done most to spur the war uh, was one on which the United States got satisfaction, but got satisfaction because of the victory in another theater of the country that it was fighting. Now, uh, I have said that this was America's worst war, its most misbegotten war, but that was not how it was seen at the time. It was regarded as a great victory. Americans persuaded themselves that their independence had been at stake and they had won it for the second time, although I, I don't think that uh, historians would agree with that assessment. And not only that, but the party that had been against the war, the Federalists, disappeared from sight. The Republicans went from strength to strength. Uh, after President Madison came President James Monroe, another uh, Republican. And his term in the White House was known as the era of good feelings because there was almost no real opposition to him. So uh, the, the, uh, the Republicans, Jefferson and Madison, may have committed something close to foreign policy mal malpractice in the eyes of posterity, or at least in the eyes of one historian, me. And yet they were amply rewarded for it in political terms. After this, this period of time, um, you know, the, with, with Monroe, there's, it, it had already begun with Jefferson, as you said, Jefferson wanted to expand West in part to, you know, grow this agricultural empire. Uh, so, you know, this, this period afterwards, you know, what, what was the, the kind of the growth prospect for America? What happened to the American economy and, and, you know, the America, you know, America's kind of continual displacement of Native Americans and uh, move, move west, essentially. Uh, the westward movement was the most important feature of American life in the first half of the 20th century. It was inexorable. Um, the British, uh, after the Seven Years' War, designated a line running east and west through the Appalachians as the proclamation line. It was proclaimed that the colonists were not allowed to settle beyond that and ruling out most of North America from American settlement was one of the American grievances against the British in the Revolutionary War. But even before then, they weren't paying any attention to it. Um, and the United States expanded so that by mid-century, uh, it occupied all of North America up to what is now the border with Canada and to the Pacific Ocean. This came at the expense of the Native Americans who were weaker and divided and really had no chance against the European settlers. They resisted in one way or another, but here we have a cultural factor coming into play. Um, 
it's it's perhaps unfair to call them less advanced culturally than the Europeans, but certainly their material culture didn't give them the basis for military strength that the European settlers had. Uh, they had not experienced the Industrial Revolution. They hadn't really experienced the Agricultural Revolution, which led to cities and settled societies and hierarchies and large armies in Europe. Uh, they were hunters and gatherers for the most part. And although they had a very sophisticated culture and although they were fierce and brave warriors, uh, they couldn't organize themselves the way the Americans could. And so they were basically doomed from the start, especially because the European settlers, the Americans, were not only vastly superior militarily, but they were determined to expand. That was one of the cardinal principles of American life and expand they did. You know, this expansion, obviously, you know, at this period of time, the U.S., uh, you know, in North America, there wasn't, they weren't the only power laying claim to, to native land. Um, there was obviously other claim, you know, there were still other cl European claims to these lands. Uh, and, you know, the, the U.S. was, especially towards the South, you know, there were certain, like Texas and, and in the West, California, uh, would eventually precipitate in the Mexican War. So how did, how did the, the Mexican War come about and, and what made the Mexican War uh, different from the previous wars America had fought? Yes, the Mexican War is, is important and underappreciated. Um, there were two European powers that still had footholds in North America after the American Revolution. One was Britain in Canada, and the British were in the Western Hemisphere by far the most important and most powerful European country because they had naval supremacy, but the British were really not interested in expanding their formal empire. They decided they didn't want to try to get the 13 colonies back. They were very important economically in Latin America, but they didn't want to govern Latin America. So they weren't really opposed to the American design for expanding across the continent. They were uh, opposed to the American wish to annex Canada, but the Americans never succeeded in doing that. The other uh, European power with territory in North America was Spain. But as a result of the Mexican Revolution in the first part of the 19th century, that territory passed to the independent country of Mexico. One part of Mexico was Texas and Americans began settling there with the permission of the, the Mexican government. Well, by the 1840s, uh, the, indeed by the 1830s, Americans dominated Mexico. There were very few uh, Mexicans in Texas. Sorry, Americans dominated Texas. The Texans proclaimed independence, uh, and then they wanted to join the Union, but there was some controversy about that. Uh, expansion in the 19th century, in the first half of the 19th century, invariably raised the question of slavery. Uh, when a new state came into the Union, the question was, would it be a slave state or a free state? The South wanted new states to be slave states. Uh, the North wanted new states to be free states, and, and that caused considerable friction and finally led 
to the Civil War, but there was a, a delay in Texas being admitted to the Union. In 1844, the first so-called dark horse candidate for president, James K. Polk of Tennessee, became president, and he announced that he wanted to bring Texas in to the Union, and he wanted to bring in what became the southwestern part of the United States. Uh, thus began the Mexican War. Uh, it was really a war of conquest. Uh, it wasn't naked aggression in the sense that the Americans and the Mexicans disagreed on where the border of Texas was. And, there, and then when, where the border of the United States was when Texas joined the Union. Uh, the, the Mexicans uh, said that it was to the north of where the Americans said it was. So there was some no man's land between those two territories, between two rivers, in fact. So Polk sent American troops into no man's land, which the Mexicans claimed as their territory, which was a provocative act. War began and the Americans won the war. And incidentally, uh, the Mexican War was the first time that the United States fought against an opponent that wasn't stronger. And it was the first time that American military prowess was on display. The American defeat of Mexico, including the invasion of Mexico, the amphibious assault on Mexico, was a great military operation previewing two similar operations in the 20th century. Operation Overlord, known as D-Day, the assault from Great Britain on France in 1944 on the way to uh, Germany in, in World War II, and then uh, the Incheon landing in Korea by General MacArthur in the Korean War. Well, uh, and, and also it's worth noting that one of the Americans who distinguished himself in the Mexican War by his virtuosity in the Army Corps of Engineers was Robert E. Lee, who, of course, became the commander in chief of the Confederacy in the Civil War. Well, the Americans uh, managed to, to defeat the Mexicans by occupying Mexico City. And as the war had gone on, uh, Polk's idea of what territories the United States should annex at the end of the war had expanded. He had originally sent a man named Trist to Mexico to negotiate with the Mexicans with the instructions that Trist should annex those parts of Mexico that had few or no Mexicans. Americans wanted a Mexi Mexican territory. They didn't want a Mexican citizens. After Trist had been sent, Polks decided that he wanted all of Mexico, including Mexicans. And he sent instructions to Nicholas Trist, who was, I think, a relative of Thomas Jefferson, in addition to knowing something about Latin America, which is why he got the job. He sent negotiations to Trist saying that Trist should insist on all of Mexico being ceded to the United States. Trist didn't think that was a good idea, so he disobeyed orders. He signed a treaty which gave the United States much of Mexico, much of what is now the southwestern United States, including California, but not the territory that it contained the most Mexicans. So this was uh, the greatest act of insubordination in American history. 
Polk was angry, but then he decided that he, he probably couldn't uh, countermand the treaty, so he accepted it. And that's how America got its shape. The southwestern United States is in the Union because of the Mexican War and its consequences. And, you know, during this time, uh, you, you sort of discussed the, the economic development that was ongoing. There was a sort of a, a bifurca- industry bifurcation between the South and the North. The South, uh, primarily in cotton, and the North in textiles. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little about the relations between uh, these two industries and how once the U.S. Uh, once the North started to maybe move away from, I, I think you, you mentioned move away from textiles into other industries. It caused uh, obviously you know the conflict that would lead the North to advocate uh, for, or would lead the South to cede, and then lead the North to advocate for the end of slavery? Uh, Yes. Well, slavery was an issue from the beginning, as we all know. There was a compromise in writing the Constitution that preserved it. Um, In the 18th century, Americans didn't really know what to do about slavery. It was a fact of life. It had always been a fact of life. Slavery was universal. It wasn't just in the United States, but Americans were embarrassed about it at least many Americans were, especially after the revolution. After all, the revolution had been made in the name of liberty. And here was a practice in what Americans regarded as the cradle of liberty, denying basic liberties to a whole class of people. So Americans hoped without any real plan that slavery would somehow die out. What happened? Well, the Industrial Revolution happened. The Industrial Revolution began in Great Britain, and it involved the substitute of inanimate power for human and animal power, which vastly expanded the scope of economic activity. And we live with the latest iteration of the Industrial Revolution today. Uh, The Industrial Revolution introduced machines into the economy uh, for the first time. Machines powered not by animals or humans, but by inanimate power, electricity, basically. That made possible what we know as industries, that is, products made industrially rather than by hand. And what was the first uh, industry? It was textiles. And, And that was an obvious one because making textiles wasn't all that complicated. And it had a huge market because before the Industrial Revolution, uh, all but the wealthiest people had only had one suit of clothing, which they had made for themselves and wore all the time. Well, with the Industrial Revolution, you could get a change of clothing. It was unheard of in human history unless you were an aristocrat. And yet it, it, it became possible for everyone. So it was a, a huge industry. Uh, the first industry, the most productive industry. Uh, it was like, like I don't know, coal or oil later in the century, uh, like uh, being, I don't know, Microsoft or Amazon today. It was, uh, it was a license to mint money, to print money. And what was the basic uh, raw material for textiles? It was cotton. And it so happened that Jefferson had bought a huge chunk of what became the United States from France, known as the Louisiana Purchase. And the 
the territories in the Louisiana Purchase were ideal for growing cotton. And the most economical way to grow cotton, to make a fortune, seemed to be to use slaves. So there, just as there was a huge demand for cotton, there was a huge demand for slavery, and slavery flourished. But the North was still uncomfortable about it, and that led to the huge divide between North and South that ultimately led to the Civil War. But in answer to your question about the economics of cotton, in the early 19th century, uh, when textiles were, in effect, the only game in town for the Industrial Revolution, cotton led the country in economic growth. It was the leading industry, and the North benefited from the South's cotton growth. The South exported a lot of cotton to Great Britain, which used Southern cotton for its textiles, but Americans began manufacturing textiles, especially in Lowell, Massachusetts and other places. But as the Industrial Revolution continued, other industries sprang up in other parts of the country in what became the industrial Midwest, Ohio and Illinois and Pennsylvania especially. Those industries were distinct from cotton they became more important economically to the United States. Cotton lost its primacy in the American economy in the North, and that made it easier for the North to oppose the expansion of slavery. Once the, the Civil War finally begins, uh, what is the sort of reception of the Civil War in Europe? Uh, what, how, how does Great Britain react, for example? Well, Great Britain was the only European country that really counted. Great Britain was ambivalent. Uh, there was real anti-slavery sentiment in the British public. And of course, the British themselves abolished slavery. Uh, it wasn't nearly as important economically in Great Britain as it was in the United States and abolished the slave trade. Um, the... Uh, the British were important because they were the only Europeans who could affect the war through their naval prowess. The South very much wanted and expected the British to side with them. They sought recognition by Great Britain. And if that had happened, it would have been an enormous advantage for the South. The Union was, of course, dead set against this. In Great Britain, uh, the government was of two minds. On the one hand, some of them were sympathetic to the aristocratic way of life that Southern planters and plantation owners pursued and uh, didn't like republics. They believed in monarchies, so they were suspicious of the United States and also would have been happy to have the great North American republic divided in half and thereby become less of a threat to Canada. On the other hand, the British were the guardians of liberty throughout the world and in Europe, at least as they saw it. The British working class especially was dead set against uh, slavery. So the British government waited. They decided more or less to wait and see which side got the upper hand. After 1863, the Union got the upper hand, and recognition of the Confederacy uh, became a dead letter in Great Britain. But the, uh, the battle between the Union and the Confederacy to get Britain to do what each side wanted it to do, 
for the South to enter the war on the side of the South, or at least recognize the South, for the North have nothing to do with it. That was a very important part of the Civil War, and it was a, a kind of symbolic battlefield on which the Union prevailed. Once the, the Union prevails and, and America is, is made whole again, you say that this was the sort of the moment or just after where America finally emerges as a sort of great power on the global stage. And, you know, what, what, do, what sort of was the, the, the foreign policy thinking afterwards and America's uh, perspective on what its role should be in the globe? Uh, Americans were slow to assume the role of great power uh, between the end of the Civil War in 1865 and the American debut on the world stage as a great power with the Spanish-American War and the acquisition of an imperial possession in the Philippines in 1898, the progress toward the status of great power was relatively slow, but the United States did start to carve out a sphere of influence in Central America, it did make it clear that it insisted on primacy in the Western Hemisphere, did begin to tout the importance of the Monroe Doctrine, which had been issued in 1823 by President Monroe, in effect saying to the European powers, hands off the Western Hemisphere. Now, at the time that the Monroe Doctrine was issued, the United States was in no position to enforce it. It was the British Navy that enforced the Monroe Doctrine, and Americans didn't pay much attention to it. But after the 1860s, it began to be more important in the discourse of American policy, and Americans began to see the Western Hemisphere as an area where they had special rights and privileges, culminating in 1898 with the acquisition of Hawaii and Puerto Rico, with special privileges in Cuba, and of course with uh, the Philippines becoming an American imperial possession. It's also uh, worthwhile noting that over those three decades, the American economy grew remarkably, remarkably rapidly, so that, uh, and it grew uh, because of economic expansion and also because of the expansion in America's population due to a high birth rate and immigration, first from Western and then from Southern and Eastern Europe. So that by the end of the 20th century, although the United States had just made its debut as a relatively minor great power, although a great power all the same, the American economy had become the largest in the world. And economics is the basis of power in the international system. So you mentioned these, these sort of imperial acquisitions that occurred in the, towards the, the end of the 19th century. And obviously there was, you know, a, a sort of a general scramble. There were great European powers um, at the time, you know, arising Germany, France, Belgium, the Great Britain at this time, especially Great Britain, were seizing control of various places around the globe. And, you know, what, what was the sort of the, the perspective of these great powers as to uh, the United States's claim as as one of them, as, as itself an imperial power? And... You know, additionally, what was the kind of perspective that, you know, certain Americans might have had on America, uh, you know, stepping out as 
a as a power claiming other lands uh, and dominion over other people, even though this, this seems to maybe conflict with, as you said, sort of, you know, many of the ideals that America was founded on. At the end of the 19th century, the European powers engaged in a scramble for Africa. That was the last unclaimed territory on the planet. The United States was not involved in that. There was also a, a putative, would-be, almost scramble to carve up China. And there the United States was involved because America traded with China. The United States didn't want China to be carved into uh, imperial spheres because America didn't have the military force to claim a sphere of its own. So it wanted China to be open to all Western powers trading there. And that was the origin of uh, Secretary of State John Hay's open door note uh, in, I think, 1899, maybe it was 1901, in which the Americans said, uh, China should be accessible to everyone. Uh, the, the other European powers took account of it. Everyone recognized that the United States had become uh, something other than a weak power, but it wasn't yet a particularly important great power. It had to be heeded, but not uh, deferred to. Uh, the United States did, of course, acquire an empire, uh, a formal empire, in the Philippines in 1898, but it was short-lived. It was modest compared with the empires of Britain and France, and it was half-hearted. In 1901, Theodore Roosevelt, having since become president, who'd been one of the people responsible for the Spanish-American War, gave an address to Congress saying, we've got to figure out how to get rid of the Philippines. This is a burden. So where formal empire is concerned, the United States has never been particularly interested. In the early 20th century, there's this, this emergence of, of two figures, and you, you sort of compare the two of them because uh, their viewpoints echo this, this sort of under, enduring conflict between Hamiltonian thinking and Jeffersonian mm -hmm. approaches to foreign policy. And these two figures are Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about their two competing visions of American foreign policy and, and America's role in the world. Yes, uh, when uh, Hamilton and Jefferson were active, the United States had recently become independent and had to decide what kind of country it wanted to be. And the two of them had radically different visions, which I've described. At the outset of the 20th century, the United States had become a full-fledged great power and had to decide what kind of foreign policy it wanted to pursue. Theodore Roosevelt's vision was what is sometimes called realism or realpolitik. Power is central. The promotion of the defense of American interests is the primary goal. Uh, people who focus on the balance of uh, on power uh, and on realpolitik believe that the optimal international arrangement is a stable balance of power. And Theodore Roosevelt spent a good deal of time and effort trying to contrive such a balance in East Asia. The alternative approach is sometimes called idealism or Wilsonian, Wilsonianism after Woodrow Wilson. He was a disciple in foreign policy, not domestic policy of Jefferson, just as Theodore Roosevelt had been a disciple of Hamilton and was, was an enthusiast for Hamilton. His friend 
Henry Cabot Lodge actually wrote a biography of Hamilton. Um, Wilsonianism emphasized the promotion of values rather than the defense of interests. Wilson sought after World War I to concoct not a balance of power, but what he called a concert of power through the international organization that he helped to found, the League of Nations, that the United States declined to join. So those two approaches to foreign policy have been part of American foreign policy ever since. They sometimes conflict, as we see, for example, with uh, President Biden's 2022 visit to Saudi Arabia. American values suggest having nothing to do with the government of Saudi Arabia, but American interests require having some relationship with the Saudi family and its current leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Sultan. And so, uh, so Mr. Biden is acceding to the imperative of interests in going to Saudi Arabia. That is to say, where there's a conflict between the two over a particular country or a particular policy, it's usually realism that wins out over Wilsonianism. But more than other countries, Wilsonianism has been important. It's never been completely sidelined. It's always been a part of American foreign policy. And its persistence and its relative importance are one of the things that have made American foreign policy distinctively American. So, you know, not to to skip over it, you know, obviously the really crucial event that occurred during Wilson's presidency was at, at the time, of course, called the Great War. They, they didn't know that there would be another another world war after. Um, of course, there, there could be more. So, uh, but, you know, what was the you know, it, it, it's very interesting. You were discussing there was a major reluctance to U.S. involvement in this war, and even after the war, uh, there was a kind of sense that it wasn't wasn't worth it. So, what what was the kind of the role of of the Great War, World War One, in American culture? Uh, when the war began, Wilson proclaimed American neutrality and meant it, although he was an Anglophile. Uh, he wasn't going to exert himself on behalf of Great Britain against Germany. But as the, the war proceeded, two things happened. First, Britain became increasingly important economically to the United States. It traded with the United States. It borrowed money from the United States. Germany did not because it wasn't able to do so because Britain controlled the Atlantic. So more and more Americans came to believe that the United States had a stake in a British or an allied victory, a British and French victory, not only uh, for economic reasons, but also because they didn't want Germany to dominate the continent. And because Britain and France were democracies, the, the German Reich was not. Uh, but that, that wasn't what persuaded Wilson to enter the war. A crucial event was the sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania in 1915 by German submarines. That shocked Americans and it shocked Wilson. He decided that this was a violation of the law of neutrality. It wasn't self-evidently a violation because the law of neutrality had never had to deal with submarines before. But he warned the Germans that if they ever did it again, if they resumed unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, the United States would take a very dim view of it. 
1917, the Germans did resume uh, submarine warfare, and in April, the United States declared war. Uh, it sent troops to the continent. It was part of the final push that defeated Germany uh, in 1918. And then came the peace conference, which Wilson did care a lot about and, and took an active part in. He wanted to, <clears throat> to contrive a peace settlement that would make further wars impossible. Didn't work that way. He put great store in the League of Nations. Um, he wrote the League of Nations into the peace treaty with Germany. The peace treaty had to be ratified by the American Senate. The Senate debated whether the League of Nations was an organization to which the United States should belong. It offered some reservations on the basis of which it would be willing to ratify the, uh, the Versailles Treaty and so join the League. Wilson was an absolutist like Jefferson. He wanted nothing to do with it. So the treaty failed. The United States did not join the League. And 20 years later, another European war broke out, although the European war broke out not because the United States did not join the League of Nations. Uh, it broke out because Germany felt that it had been mistreated by the terms that were imposed on it. Uh, this paved the way for Adolf Hitler to come to power, and Hitler wanted to overturn the Paris 1919 settlement and resume German wars of conquest. Uh, had the United States been part of the League and had America been willing to use military force to stop Hitler in the 1930s, that might have made a difference. But the United States only came into World War II after Japan attacked the United States on December 7th, 1941. And incidentally, for several days thereafter, it was unclear that the United States would go to war with Germany. War was declared against Japan on December 8th, but there were those, including the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who thought that the United States might simply not enter the European war. For reasons that are still unclear, and that I deal with uh, in, uh, in my book, In the Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Hitler seemingly gratuitously de declared war on the United States on December 11th, allowing Roosevelt to have the United States join the European war and pursue a Europe first policy, concentrate its resources on Europe rather than on Asia, from which the attack that precipitated the United States into the war had originally come. I think that it's safe to, to say that we don't need to necessarily go into too much detail about World War II because I think many listeners will be familiar with, you know, each battle and each, especially if they've made it this far, I'm sure they are a person that would have studied World War II. Um, you know, I think we, we could sort of jump ahead to the the global order that after, you know, after finally after the defeat of Germany and the, the eventual um the, the end of the war in the Pacific, uh, the U.S. and uh, and and Britain, but the U.S. in particular, uh, embarked on a reconstruction mission, uh, specifically the Marshall Plan, and then also Bretton Woods. So, what was this kind of post-war order that the U.S. and Britain and, and others helped to build, and what did it look like, and what were its main features? 
Well, the, the United States and Great Britain uh, reorganized the global financial system at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1944. The Marshall Plan, the European Recovery Plan, came three years later in 1947, and it came about because the Cold War had started. And the rivalry with the Soviet Union became the basis for the post-1945 order. Uh, it was a rivalry between two of the victorious powers in World War II. It was uh, a military rivalry, including the competition to develop and build nuclear weapons. It was a political rivalry, and it was an economic rivalry because each of the two superpowers had a particular kind of economic system in which it believed and, and that it wanted to spread around the world. This was an ideological conflict because each side thought that its system had universal validity and should be spread as far as possible. And each side thought that the other's political and economic system was entirely invalid and should disappear. This led to a global rivalry that lasted from 1945 to 1990 in which there were near wars between the two superpowers, two crises in particular, the, Ber the two Berlin crises and the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And there were a number of proxy wars, notably for the United States, the Korean War and the war in Vietnam, and for the Soviet Union, the war in Afghanistan, but never a direct clash of arms between the two superpowers. They restrained themselves in no small part because each was equipped with nuclear weapons. And it was clear early on that a nuclear exchange would bring disaster beyond all previous reckoning. The United States and its allies won the Cold War mainly because of a superior political and economic performance. The Western economies outdid those of the Soviet Union. Western democracy had legitimacy. Marxism-Leninism in the Eastern Bloc did not. Did not. Along came Mikhail Gorbachev, who recognized that the Soviet Union was falling behind, implemented reforms that he intended to make the Soviet Union and its satellites a more vibrant, prosperous bloc, but in the end had the effect of destroying this political construct. So that by 1990, the United States found itself bestriding the globe like a colossus, the world's first hyperpower, as I call it, in the four ages of American foreign policy. The term coming from the French foreign minister, Hubert Védrine, who called the United States in the wake of the Cold War an hyperpuissance. And, you know, this, this period I've read, you know, it's always enjoyable or, or at, maybe not enjoyable is not the right word, but it's always fascinating to read newspaper op-eds from this period of time because there's just absolute jubilance in the sense that the U.S. was this, you know, the, the unipolar moment as, as some have called. So what was this, this period like after the collapse of the Soviet Union? What was the sense and what was the kind of idea about you know, about what the U.S.'s foreign policy could be moving forward. And, you know, obviously, then my sort of follow-up question to that is, is 
what what happened in the the kind of the Gulf War period and this this idea of what U.S. foreign policy or U.S. military engagement or what the new rules were that the U.S. was going to set for everyone around the globe. The period of the American hyperpower was the period of maximal power on the part of the United States in the world. And bear in mind that power is relative. It wasn't just that the United States had so much power, but that other countries had relatively little and didn't challenge the United States. The United States had no major challengers, no major security threats. In this period, the United States decided not by a great debate, but by stumbling into it, that the great American project in the world would be to foster around the world in different countries by different means, a particular kind of government, our kind of government, a government that practiced democracy, that defended human rights, that provided the basis for prosperity, and that was at peace with its neighbors. The world seemed to be moving in that direction with the collapse of communism, and the United States tried to foster such a government in places as diverse as Bosnia, Somalia, Haiti, China, Russia, by different means, of course. That project failed. Why did it fail? It failed because it turns out that that kind of government has preconditions it requires certain foundations. Democratic governance of the Western kind requires that the society being so governed have a particular set of values. It requires a particular set of institutions and experience in operating them. It requires a particular outlook on the world and a particular history. And although the democracies of the West have those preconditions, the countries where the United States tried to bring this style of government did not. And so the American project failed. It failed because in the post-Cold War era, in the era of the American hyperpower, the United States undertook what turned out to be mission impossible. What were some of the, you know, to sort of uh, drill down a little bit, some of the the particular um, ventures, adventure, you know, misadventures maybe is the right word uh, that the U.S. undertook that led to the kind of the collapse of, of this vision? Well, the United States made some serious mistakes. I will mention two of them. One was the expansion of NATO in the 1990s eastward toward the border of non-communist Russia, despite the fact that various Western leaders had promised Soviet and Russian leaders that this would not happen, and against the wishes, not just of the leaders, but of the public, of the population of Russia. This was a crucial moment because it turned Russian opinion in an anti-Western direction. And Vladimir Putin, who became the leader of Russia in 2000, has exploited, capitalized on, and used this anti-American sentiment to conduct an aggressive foreign policy, most recently the February 24th attack on Ukraine. That attack, I believe, 
and argue in the book and have argued elsewhere stems ultimately from that mistaken American decision. I do not believe that Putin believed that Ukraine was about to join NATO in 2022. What he did believe, what he knew was that he could use that as a valid excuse for invading Ukraine, an excuse that would be approved and believed by the Russian public. And that attitude on the part of the Russian public came from the expansion of NATO when Boris Yeltsin, a Democrat, was president of Russia. The second great mistake was the war in Iraq. It turned out badly. It became unpopular and it weakened the American position all around the world, not least because it weakened American domestic public support for a, a robust foreign policy. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the, especially during the, the Trump era, the, you could say, I turn away from the U.S.'s typical allies and maybe his, his pivot towards uh, strongmen like him that, that he admired. Uh, and, you know, sort of, you know, taking that question to sort of take us like where we are now, uh, you know, the sort of current, current state of the U.S. and current foreign policy challenges, current, um, current place. Is the U.S., you know, still a hyperpower? What, what, what are we considered now? What, what, what would you term us? I should, uh, in the interest of full disclosure to potential purchasers of the four ages of American foreign policy, and I certainly encourage all our listeners to purchase it, I should say that this book ends in 2015 and does not cover the Trump era. But I will make two comments about Trump. <clears throat> First, uh, he was, in my view, among other things, an incompetent president. He wasn't powerful in the sense that he got the government to follow his lead, and that was true for various reasons. Uh, among others, that he wasn't very interested in public policy and didn't know much about public policy. Therefore, for all of his protestations of friendship and admiration for Vladimir Putin, the Trump administration actually carried out a tougher policy toward Russia than did the Obama administration. The second point I would make about Trump is that he inaugurated a much tougher policy on China, and that change has stuck. Uh, the United States became uh, much more adversarial toward China during the Trump administration as a result of an accumulation of factors. When there had been an effort to conduct a tougher policy on China, in the past, over the previous 25 years, there had always been people in the United States, the business community foremost among them, who opposed it. The business community did not oppose a tougher line on China, nor did the Europeans. So Trump's one contribution, one lasting contribution to American foreign policy was to have been the American who took a tougher line, the American president, who took a tougher line on China. Now, as to your question, where are we now? We are, I think, in a new era. The United States is not a hyperpower because there are three challenges to the United States in the world. 
Russia in Europe, China in East Asia, and Iran not to be discounted in the Middle East. In that sense, uh, this era resembles the Cold War in that the United States is the mainstay of coalitions opposing countries that seek to overturn the status quo. But this era of American foreign policy is distinct from the Cold War in at least three ways. First, in the Cold War, the United States faced a single global challenge. Here, there are three regional challenges. Second, the Cold War was an ideological contest. The United States and the Soviet Union had completely different political and economic systems that they wanted to spread around the world. That's not true now. Third, the Cold War was a conflict in which the two main protagonists had almost nothing to do with one another economically. That is far from the case now. Uh, Russia is a minor part of the global economy because of its, uh, its energy, and China is a huge part of the, of the global economy. So the United States has to conduct a rivalry with a country with which it is in some ways economically interdependent. How that turns out, we simply don't know. But I do say about this fifth as yet unnamed era in American foreign policy at the end of my book, The Four Ages of Foreign Policy, that what we do know about this era is that it will be the product, product of three things. First, America's uh, relative power in the world. Second, the characteristically American approaches to foreign policy. And I say in the book that the United States has not only been unusually ideological in the conduct of its foreign policy, but also unusually democratic in that the public has had a large role and unusually economic in that the United States more than other countries has relied on economic instruments. So the second determinant of American foreign policy in this post-Cold -post War era will be the ideological, economic, and democratic character of American foreign policy. And then there's a third component that will determine the future, and that is the unpredictable contingencies of human history. And I think that your book is, is filled with these contingencies of how one, you know, uh, one small event, you know, or small relative, like the sinking of the Lusitania can completely change public perception and lead America down different paths. Um, you know, your book obviously recently came out, but there's something I always like to ask if there's anything since the release, any perception or anything that you have maybe reconsidered or changed your mind about that you wrote um, or, or any new, new revelations? The answer to that question is no. And I deliberately ended the book in 2015 uh, I did so mainly because I believe that that is the terminal point of the fourth age of American foreign policy. But I did so as well because when you write about the past, the past stays put. Interpretations change, but the events don't change. And therefore, you don't have to worry about what to put in the next edition of your book. Well, thank you so much for being a guest in the New Books Network. It was great speaking with you. Uh, for any of our listeners, 
you go to the show notes, you can find a link to the book for purchase uh, from, from Oxford University Press. So thank you. Thank you.